we find ourselves in America where anything can happen. From your dreams coming true to your nightmares becoming real. Welcome to American Crimes. We are all evil in this whole form. fantasy world where things got too heated. Because if Jeffrey Donald doesn't meet the, the requirements for insanity, then I think I tell the the guy that does. Welcome to American Crimes. Thank you all so much for tuning in. It means the world that there are people that listen to the podcast. But today, keeping up with the times in the sense where New York is dealing with things like, oh, people are punching Rick Moranis. I figure it's only right to do an episode about New York in the 1970s. Because New York in the 1970s is nothing like it is today. Nothing close. Okay? When you visited New York, you got a pamphlet. Okay? Because all of the dreams coming true in the Empire State, there seemed to be nightmare to match it. They called it Fear City. I mean, there's a whole documentary based on it on Netflix. You can check it out right now. But in June of 1975... The pamphlet that was distributed to the tourists titled Fear City, a Survival Guide for Visitors of New York City, it offered advice to those visiting New York, and it gave them pro-safety tips on how to endure their stay. The second paragraph, readers were warned by New York's true nature, quoting, By the time you read this, the number of public safety personnel available to protect residents and visitors may already have been still further reduced. Under those circumstances, the best advice we can give you is this. Until things change, stay away from New York City if you possibly can. Fear City was emblazoned on the face of a grim reaper. The pamphlet contained nine guidelines visitors were told to follow in order to benefit their safety. Number one, stay off the streets after 6 p.m. Number two, do not walk. Number three, avoid public transportation Number four, remain in Manhattan. Five, protect your property. Six, safeguard your handbag. Seven, conceal property in automobiles. Eight, do not leave valuables in your hotel room. And nine, be aware of fire hazards. There was never a more truer statement of New York at this time. So let's dive in today's episode where we talk about not only how bad it was on the streets of New York at this time, but a specific character that was called the Babyface Killer. So in 1970, many pieces of the Big Apple weren't doing very well. 
It was in one of these places where a young man named Willie Boskett grew up. Boskett was born in Harlem, December 9, 1962. His father had been in prison just after Willie was conceived. His father, Willie Sr., was sentenced to life for the murder of two people in a Milwaukee pawn shop. Willie Boskett, Willie Boskett, hmm, uh, Sr., his father, had just moved to Milwaukee to promote a better life for his girlfriend and their unborn child. Willie Sr. arrived there broke and desperate for cash. He attempted to sell his belongings to local pawn shops for a quick buck, as a lot of us have done. On a particularly desperate occasion, Boskett Sr. offered one of those locations a collection of pornographic pictures. The owner of this establishment agreed to purchase them, but claimed that he could not pay Boskett until the following day. When Boskett Sr. returned, the owner refused to pay him. It was then that Willie Boskett Sr. pulled the knife and stabbed the owner of the pawn shop. He quickly killed a nearby witness as well. His father's absence instilled a sense of abandonment in Willie and his mother, Laura. So what a scary thing to hear, right? I mean, to, <laughs> pawn shops suck. You know, people that run them aren't great people either, right? They, they're always trying to get the better end of the deal. It doesn't matter what you do. And I would say a lot of us have probably been wronged by pawn shops. But not many of us have taken that wronging into our own hands and going back to the pawn shop to take the lives of those people and a witness nearby. That's just not, it's not a common theme. And then to think that he's going out of his way to try to promote a better life for him, his girlfriend, and their soon-to-be-born kid. And for some reason, in doing that, he decides to take lives of people, to kill people. It doesn't make any sense. I really don't think that there was a, a vested interest in the family if he goes and murders. So from the moment that Willie Jr. is born, his mother didn't help him cope with the fact that his father's not around. She simply was like, boy, you're as bad as your father. Or you sure got the devil in you. And Willie grew up with that expectation. It came from his mother, from his grandmother, and eventually Willie believed it. He was going to be a bad man. When he learned that his father was in prison, that seemed to be the boy's ultimate destination too. Willie's environment seemed just as determined to make that prophecy come true. Because when Laura was first left jobless and pregnant with Willie Jr., she returned to her mother's home for aid. Now at that time, Nancy Roan, Lauren's mother, was already caring for Laura's first child, a girl, a girl named Cheryl. Now before Willie turned six, he was already running, thieving, and making a name for himself on the streets. His mother taught him to, above all else, preserve his respect. Now, whether that meant taunting or outright harming another person never made a difference. For Willie, as his father before him, respect was all he had. Willie Sr., his father, had been known to be explosive. He was a bad man, after all, and nobody was respected on the streets as much as a bad man. 
It didn't take long before earning that title seemed to be the goal for the young Willie Bosket. So here you have this father who is absent and still somehow rubbing off on him, leading him to make bad decisions, and it's just weird to still have that negative influence even though he's not around, but I guess because the people around him are still kind of saying, hey, you know, your dad's in prison, he did this and that. He's like, oh, okay, instead of trying to be better than him, he's going to be the same. And that's really what it is. That's the road. You're either going to be identical or you're going to be completely different. And it's a shame when it's like this, when, it, when your father is that guy and you have to deal with this growing up. And essentially they could have just lied to him and been like, yeah, your dad's just not around. They didn't have to tell him the stories or say he's in prison. They could have hid it from him. So essentially it's not just the father's fault and what he did. Maybe he did have the family's best interest in mind, but then again, if that was the case, your your main goal should be to be around instead of doing something that's going to take you away forever. So Willie Boskett Jr. becomes unpredictable. One time in a crowded movie theater, Willie Boskett jumped up and attempted to strangle a man who had knocked down his popcorn. He went on to say, I'm only kidding. I felt like choking somebody. He was frequently stealing loose cash from the corner of his neighborhood where men would gather to play dice. He would often get caught shoplifting in nearby grocery stores. Boskett would even pull wigs from the heads of unsuspecting women for a quick laugh. He was enrolled in first grade after turning six. There, he fought with other students, ran recklessly through the halls, and pulled the fire alarms. Willie actually only enjoyed one teacher, Miss House. She was assigned to the most chaotic of children. When Willie moved on from her class, however, he was right back at it again. School was full of trouble lectures and boring classmates. By second grade, Boskett was regularly skipping class. While Willie hurled a typewriter through the school's window, he was finally expelled. So again, we're hearing more and more information about just the radicalness of this kid at a very early age. And you can't say that all kids that show this type of behavior will go on to become killers, but there has to be a way to stop it. To avoid it. Okay, I mean, it was the same institution that Willie's father and grandfather ended up being in that on March 9th, 1971, Laura takes her son to the psychiatric evaluation at the same hospital called Bellevue Hospital. Now imagine finding that information out. It's going to make the experience that much harder to deal with, right? Knowing for sure that your father, your family has a history of being in this place, it's going to affect you differently, rather than having no idea and just being there for your own sake. But chances are, much like the way the mom told him that he was going to be a bad kid just like his father, she probably also said, hey, we're going to this hospital where, again, your father and grandfather spent some time. Like, what is happening? I mean, that would bother me more than anything. I mean, just more than just being at the hospital. Just knowing that we have a reputation. You know, the whole family. 
They asked to keep uh, Willie for 30 days at the hospital, but the young boy didn't understand how he could be locked away from the world like an adult. In his experience, children were slapped or scolded, but never imprisoned. But Bellevue took him from his mother. He came to feel that she abandoned him there, casting him off as a problem. And Bellevue wanted to keep Willie even longer. His mother refused, tired of visiting a crying child and hoping that his stay had changed something within him. Willie's grandfather, James, had recently been released from Riker's prison after kidnapping and sodomizing a young boy. Still, Laura and Nancy had their hands full. When James offered to take Willie on the weekends to his newly rented apartment in Queens, they were into it. They said, let's go. No one thought to warn Willie of his grandfather's crimes, though. It wasn't long before James took the child to his bedroom. His grandfather went on to say things like, I'm going to teach you about sex. This will be our little secret. And by the fourth occasion, James also began to beat the young boy. But Willie fought back, and he eventually fled to a nearby store where he phones the police. And that only made Willie's future behavior that much worse. So now we're seeing more of the depths of just... He, he was made to fail. There was nothing in his life that was going to make him do anything positive. And it's a little ridiculous that... <clears throat> excuse me. That his mother was so willing to mention the father's crimes. Or at least the fact that his father was and is in prison for doing bad things. But she doesn't want to say anything about the grandfather. It seemed like the mom was so willing to share information, except when it came to this, almost as if she's setting him up. Like, what in the fuck? If you knew for sure that anyone in your family had those kind of charges, why, why would you leave your kid with them? There is no exception. After setting fire to a park bench while a man slept on it, Laura gave up yet again. The family court sentenced Willie Bas uh, Boskett, excuse me, to the Witwick, uh, Wiltwick School for Boys. And yet again, Willie was unknowingly tracing his father's footsteps. Willie Sr. had been sent to Wit uh, Wiltwick, it's spelled so weird, you guys, when he was nine years old, so his dad also went to the same place. Willie himself was the same age when he finally arrived. Fear City was grooming this boy. Still, his family and peers would be surprised to learn that Willie's crimes would eventually escalate to the point of consecutive sentences of 25 years to life. Willie Boskett Jr. was not eligible for release from prison until he is 100 years old. Even the renowned Wiltwick School for Boys could not break Willie from his destructive path. So when I think about these things and I hear this, I, I remember growing up myself and getting threatened by my mother and family members to be sent to military school. Okay, now that was just because of reckless behavior, doing dumb shit with friends, but it, it was never to this degree, and it never escalated anywhere past this. 
Now, at the time of his sentencing to Wiltwick at the family courts, the young man did whatever he could to argue with the judge. You're a lying motherfucker, he shouted. And Willie was only nine years old. He says, you can go fuck yourself. And I don't need no motherfucking white lawyer, neither. I want to go home. But instead, he was taken to Wiltwick, where the best and brightest were determined to turn the troubled youth towards a brighter path. From that very moment of his arrival, Willie's time at Wiltwick was marked by hardship. While Willie received a tour of the nearby woods from another boy, his mother left him. He returned to find her gone, again, no embrace. Willie screamed, cursed, cried, and kicked. He hated feeling duped, left alone, again, by his mom. She just left without saying anything to him. His growing hatred for women had started to outweigh his love. His troubles did not end that day. He was feeling threatened at a certain point, so the young Willie smacked a boy named Richard with a sock filled with stones. It opened Richard's skull but saved Willie from the danger of being bullied. Willie hit him again and again until Richard began to seize. Willie got his respect that day. The boys called him crazy, and he liked it. So there's nothing really <clears throat> good about being put in these situations and then being the best one there. Does that make sense? Like, he has the best reputation. The best, worst reputation. Okay, it's a school for kids that are troubled, and he is the king of the trouble. Does that make sense? It's just a way harder to deal with. You're, you're a lost cause, essentially. But there's all these people in the world that still want to help. They want to do what they can to fix you somehow. Does it work? And if it does, how often? What are the statistics on that? I gotta know. I mean, how many of these kids are going into a system like this to become the worst kid there, only to come out the other end better? I just don't see it happening very often. So prior to Willie Boskett showing up at Wiltwick, they had a reputation of never giving up. They didn't transfer anybody. They didn't tranquilize them with medication. Wiltwick believed in firm guidance. But Willie took advantage of that environment. He was violent, rambunctious, rambunctious, and unapologetic. He would break furniture, assault other children, and Wiltwick had no choice but to sedate him. But while Willie was there, his mom rarely came to visit. He missed her incredibly. And that's what began many attempts to escape. They escalated until Wiltwick finally gave up on him. Willie felt as though he had beat the system. But he was sent back to Bellevue for another diagnosis. Boskett was rejected there as well. Willie was passed around by institutions until the family court failed to extend his case. He was freed in February 1976. Willie had just turned 13 and was eager to make up for lost time. He started spending more and more of his days with his troublemaking cousins. Together they resumed the life of crime that Willie began when he was just a child. So I don't think anybody can blame... I don't know. I guess this system does that. Right? But at such a young age, it seems like there has to be something that'll give to make this kid 
better, to fix him, something, anything. But as time goes on, you just find out that he continues to do bad stuff. And then they just say, well, he's a lost cause, good luck. And now he's out there on the streets essentially having no guidance whatsoever. He doesn't have any guidance because he's the leader of him and his cousins. They start stealing fire extinguishers from subway cars. When they get bored of that, they'd move to pickpocketing, then robbing whichever subway passengers they thought looked the weakest. Willie went on to be arrested for the first time in March of 1976. He'd been caught rifling through the pockets of a sleeping passenger. This was the beginning of another downward spiral for Willie. After that series of arrests, he was admitted by the court to the Lieutenant, to the Lieutenant Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. home. The sentence amused Willie. The Kennedy home was meant for far less dangerous boys than him. He was a bad man and it wouldn't take much effort for him to escape. Ten days passed in the Kennedy home before Willie disappeared. He was back home. So now they're just pushing him around again. He ends up at another place, simply escapes. It's basically like they're waiting for him to be old enough to be kept in prison. Which maybe that would have been better had that happened sooner. Willie wasn't again detained until January of 1977 when his mother reported him to the police for striking his cousin with a hammer. He returned this time to another institution called Brookwood. There he was taught to repair furniture and replace broken panes of glass. Brookwood let him work. They let him learn and this was Willie's first attempt to make something of himself. Boskett's efforts improved. His behavior got better. His tantrum became his tantrums became less frequent. Willie had found things that he liked. He liked working in maintenance. He got respect. He learned. And he earned it. He grew up there. But of course that time had to come to an end, and Willie was meant to transfer to a similar maintenance program at another development center. When he arrived, the staff confessed that there was no such program that existed. Willie was being shuffled back into the strict school regiment that he'd grown to despise. Willie Boskett stayed there for just one night before escaping. So he finally finds things that he enjoys working, and they say, okay, well, time's up. We gotta put you back in the school system, which obviously you weren't doing well in, in the first place, I don't know, it's like you don't have any real answers in cases like this. They're very special. You don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know which direction to push somebody. So Willie gets his first gun from his mom's new boyfriend because he is the protector of the drug dealer next door. And on February 1st, 1978, Willie kills a boy who had been disrespecting him. Willie knocked the child from a rooftop and burned the body the next day. On March 19th of the same year, Willie was back prowling the subway system of New York. He targeted a middle-aged Hispanic man who had fallen asleep in the car. The man wore pink sunglasses and a digital watch. The stranger reminded Willie of an old counselor, one who used to shout and swat his pupils. Willie waited until he and that sleeping passenger were the last two people on the subway. He started going through his pockets when the man woke up, and Willie didn't hesitate. 
He was looking for an excuse to pull the trigger. He shot Noel Perez through his right eye and then through his temple. Willie took the stranger's watch, his ring, and $15 from his pocket. And from March 24th to March 27th, Willie committed himself to a pattern of violent crimes alongside his cousin, Herman. So now he's killed. Now he's officially killed people. And yes, he had a horrible upbringing. It was all very rough for him. But at the same time, it's like the moments don't add up to where killing should be the answer at any at any point. With all the things that happened to him, it seems odd that it would lead to now he has to kill. And not only that, he's working with a family member. So now you have to wonder, did this family member also have the same thing happen to him with the grandfather? How close the cousins are they? But one night, Willie and his cousin pushed a man down a set of stairs and then stole $12 as the stranger bled on the ground. Another night, Willie shot a 57-year-old passenger named Matthew Connolly. On the 27th of March, Herman and Willie cornered another middle-aged Hispanic man. And when Moises Perez insisted that he had no money for the criminals, Willie shot him. Willie and Herman were both arrested on March 31st. Once the more simple-minded Herman was convinced the cousin had betrayed him, Willie was identified as the killer that the police had been searching for. Hearings began on April 6th. Boskett obviously took a reckless stand in the courtroom. He was profane, aggressive, going so far as to spit on his lawyer and threaten the judge. Willie Boskett was strained and exhausted, resorting, resorting to the violent nature that he'd been harboring in for so much of his youth. It seemed that the justice system was only wasting his time once more. He was again too young to be tried as an adult, and Willie knew that. He knew that he wouldn't be sent to prison. So Willie surrendered his right to a trial, pled guilty on two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. In Willie's mind, he had only sped this thing along. Willie went on to receive the maximum sentence for his crime at his age. He was to be placed in the division for youth for an initial period of five years. No matter his behavior from that point on, Willie would be set free when he reached his 21st birthday. So it's crazy to think the kid even knew, oh, I can commit these crimes and I can't even get in that much trouble. And then again, imagine what else was going on in New York at this time. I mean, so much shit going on and this kid is killing people that are falling asleep on their way home from a horrible job, I'd imagine. And he's a kid, right? So Governor Hugh Carey was set to make a campaign appearance on his path of re-election just two days after Boskett's sentencing. The slap on the wrist that Willie received did not sit well with the whole of New York. Fear City had taken to calling Basket. Fear City had taken to calling Boskett the babyface killer. To secure the support of the people, Carey took a sudden and severe stand on the subject. He cited Willie's sentencing as a breakdown of the system. The Juvenile Offender Act of 1978 was passed with it. Individuals as young as 13 could be tried as adult in criminal court for charges such as murder. Soon the policy spread from New York to its neighboring states. They took to calling it the Willie Bosket Law. Willie enjoyed that fame. 
So like I said, a broken dude for sure. Lots of stuff going on. But it just doesn't seem like there's enough here to make me believe that there's reason to think he would turn into a killer. I mean, it feels more like, in my head, he should have been reclusive, isolated, away from people. But I think because he somehow ended up having these simple-minded cousins and friends, they worked for him. He used them. Even though in the end, they were like, nah, he fucking killed. He's the one that killed people. Not not me. But Basket was released in 1983. But it was this stint in prison that made him start to feel like he could straighten his life out. <clears throat> Willie had been in correspondence with his father. And his father preached about change and maturity. Bosket thought that maybe for the first time he could see life a little different, and it didn't end with him being behind bars. But no matter how pure his intentions were, Willie's reputation and the grudge held by New York City had yet to fade. Only a hundred days passed before Willie would be arrested again. His girlfriend and her neighbor had gotten into a passive-aggressive conflict. No more than the usual bickering exchange in the apartment hallways. That neighbor accidentally scared Willie, and Bosket decided to return the favor and threaten the man's life. The man called the police and claimed that Willie chased him, threatened him, and tried to break into his home. In 1984, Willie Bosket was found guilty of attempted assault and sentenced to seven more years in prison. If found guilty, it would have been Bosket's third felony and enough reason for him to be locked away for life. That day was upon him. He realized when he could look towards the future and know that nothing awaited him. He was furious. So he assaulted officer after officer until he accumulated a total of three sent He assaulted officer after officer until he accumulated a total of three life sentences. 25 to life. Willie Bosket uh, Jr. remained in solitary confinement since 1989. He waged a war against the system that he felt destroyed him. And maybe that is the thing. Maybe the system did destroy him. But in the end, they did everything they could to try to help you, I guess. I mean, to a certain degree, for sure. But you didn't take to it. You didn't try to utilize it. You said, no, nah, I'm going to keep doing me. From 1985 to 1994, he received 250 disciplinary violations. He was losing his mind here. He was going crazy. He was making himself known. And they had to take a stand within the jail, within the prison. And before meeting with visitors, he was obviously in a plexiglass cell that had enough holes in it just to let in air and sound. Um, when visitors would come in, he would be chained backwards to his own door. It would open with Willie stuck there in bondage to ensure that he could not attack visitors or personnel. When Willie Bosket dies, he will have only spent 100 days as an adult outside of prison. In the present, he searches for answers. He wonders what could have been you know, done differently. What might have saved him? Willie has not received a disciplinary violation since 1994. He accepted his existence now more than ever. And while many wonder what effect the system of incarceration and punishment might have had on Willie... Others are simply pleased to know that the state of New York kept its word. 
After the introduction of the Willie Bosket Law, New York was able to get ahead of the rampant criminal youth that had taken over the boroughs. The babyface killer was locked away, and Fear City disappeared. So again, you have this this young kid who went through this system in many different forms. His father wasn't there, his grandfather wasn't there, and then this other grandfather was there, and they did horrible things to him. But at the same time, had he taken to... I don't know, it is hard to accept your mother abandoning you. But had he said, well, she doesn't want me, and these other people do, or these other people accept me, and had he used that, he could have done better. He could have been better. To know that it, all it took was a little discipline from the prison system since 1994 for him to be good, that is proof that it could have worked out had he just said, oh, maybe I shouldn't do what I'm doing. Because he was at this point being so young that he was like, oh, I can't die. The system can't touch me. And when the system finally could touch him in the negative way where he couldn't be free, he got three square meals a day. He was in the same room for year after year looking at the same thing, hearing the same sounds. It got to be too much. He did spend almost 10 years going crazy in prison, right? Just losing his mind, having to be locked in a special cage and all this different shit. But since 1994, he's been fine. He experienced all that. He lashed out as much as he could, and he's still alive. But he killed. He killed so many times and in such vicious ways, heinous ways, and for absolutely no reason other than disrespect and for respect, I guess. Very bizarre, but that is the babyface killer. This has been American Crimes. That's New York City in the 70s. Shout out Rick Moranis. Make a comeback, dude. Make a comeback. But until next time, good night.